Hi, it's great to be with you today. Um, I've been around the King's Arms for around 25 years and after a long stint in criminal justice working for the probation service, I now get the immense privilege of leading the King's Arms project, which is an absolute joy. We have the most amazing team who give of themselves above and beyond to serve the homeless, the isolated and the displaced. And I shamelessly champion them wherever I go, because although I'm constantly inspired by their passions and the stories that they tell of breakthroughs in people's circumstances, which really come about through their prayers, their persistence and their professionalism. So that's my day job. And aside from that, I get to raise three fab kids with my husband, Matt, walk our crazy spaniel, climb mountains, run a bit, swim a bit and cheer on West Ham with the best of East London whenever I get the chance. Being a mum is a privilege that I don't take for granted and I am grateful for every day that I get with my kids. Both my parents died when I was quite young and so I cherish the life that I have with my family and the grace afforded me to live it. I'm not terribly sentimental and tend to enjoy life in the moment, but of course I do relish in taking those trips down memory lane where we could recount various adventures and times of fun together and have occasionally been known to keep hold of small reminders of those special childhood memories. And I stumbled across one such item just recently when I was clearing out my bedside table and I found a post-it note that I'd kept from my daughter, which reads as follows. Dear Tooth Fairy, why didn't you come last night? That's the second time you've done that. What is going on? Now, there's a parenting fail right there, but I know I'm not alone in Tooth Fairy mishaps. What I would say is that it's a pretty certain thing that at some point in our lives, we've all asked the question, what is going on? And that's usually linked to some sort of suffering. Either we're personally suffering or people around us are and maybe experiencing some kind of disappointment, disease, disaster or even death. And it's just so natural to ask the question, why? And often I find we tend to reach for one of two basic answers to that question. The first is moralism which is more common for people who have a religious faith. So in this instance, people have a tendency to believe that if you lead a good life, then good things will happen to you. And if you lead a bad life, then bad things will happen to you. It's almost based on the idea that kind of God is sort of up there doing some tit for tat type thing. And if you do well, then fine. And if you don't, then he'll punish you. Another idea, though, would be that of cynicism, which is based on the idea that actually no one's in charge. Life's just random. It's a matter of chance. There's no one good or powerful God in charge of everything. Or if there is some sort of God, he's either incompetent or indifferent. Well, to be honest, neither of those explanations seem very appealing or satisfactory to me. But is there any mileage in either of those views or is there some other explanation for suffering? Well, there is no book in the Bible. In fact, probably no piece of literature maybe in the world that asks the question of suffering quite like Job. So I thought that would be a good place to go today to see if we can discover about the big issue of suffering and how we understand it as part of human life. So we're going to do that by having a special Listen With Mother overview of Job. And then we're going to spend a few minutes working on what we learn about God and how that can help us in our struggles and questions. So the book of Job is set in an obscure land called Us. We don't know who wrote it, which is true of other books in the Bible as well. We think it was set around Abraham's era or before, and as a consequence, could be one of the oldest books we have. Job is the main character, and the content is really all about the questions raised by his experience of suffering. 
The book is poetic and so it's wonderfully descriptive and dramatic. It draws us into the depths of the human emotion by painting this kind of wonderful canvas of words of our experiences, our struggles, our questions and our quest to understand. It's a book of philosophy, theology and wisdom all wrapped up in one. The book is characterised as part of the wisdom literature in the Bible, keeping company with other books such as Proverbs, Psalms, Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes. And as such, we do need to understand its contribution and limitations. Firstly, not everything in wisdom literature is right. It often contains human wrestling with issues that don't necessarily reflect God's mind. And so to take those statements out of context would be folly, to say the least. It's the message of the book as a whole that determines the meaning of any statement within it. And secondly, wisdom literature is general, not particular. That means it's not always true in every situation. The book of Proverbs, for example, is not a list of promises, but of sayings that are generally true most of the time. And thirdly, it's worth noting that this book is what I would describe as faction. It's a combination of fact and fiction. That is based on facts, but those facts have been enlarged and embroidered to help us understand and to make the point. So it's worth remembering those things as we read the book. The book introduces us to a character called Job, and we're told that he's a blameless, upright man who honours God. And then straight away we're transported into the heavenly realms. And among the heavenly beings, a figure called Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser or the prosecutor. And it's like we're watching this court scene. God presents Job as a truly righteous man. And then the accuser challenges God's policy of rewarding righteous people like Job. He says, the only reason Job obeys you is because you bless him with prosperity. Let Job suffer, Satan says, and then we'll see how righteous he actually is. So God agrees to let the accuser inflict suffering on Job. Now, at this point in the story, most of us go, what? Why would God do that? And then we assume the book's going to answer that question. Why does God allow good people to suffer? But as we read on, spoiler alert, the book doesn't answer that question. It never answers that question. What we're about to discover, in fact, is that the answers that lie behind the questions are what we get to. Questions about God's justice, whether God has the power to operate the universe and if we can really trust him. So as we read on, we find a suffering and bewildered Job who's approached by three friends who are going to try and provide wisdom and counsel. And then we go into the main part of the book. First, Job speaks. Then one of his friends responds. Then Job responds to that response and the next friend chips in and so on. And for three cycles between the four of them, these conversations ensue. And the whole debate is focused on these three questions. Is God truly just in character? Does God actually run the universe? And if so, how is Job's suffering to be explained? Now, Job and the friends, they're working from this huge assumption about what God's justice ought to look like in the world. Namely, that every single thing that happens in the universe should operate according to the strict principle of justice. So if you're a wise, good person, you honour God and good things will happen to you. God will reward you. But if you're evil and stupid and do sinful things, then bad things will happen to you. God will punish you. Now, Job's constant arguments through his speeches is this. First of all, he's innocent. And so the implication of that is that his suffering is not a divine punishment. Remember, at the start, God himself said Job is righteous and blameless. So Job concludes his argument by accusing God. God either doesn't run the world according to justice or even worse, God himself is simply unjust. 
But the friends, on the other hand, they beg to differ. Their argument is that God is just. The implication being that God always runs the world according to justice. And so in some way they conclude by accusing not God, but Job. Job must have done something really, really bad for God to punish him like this. They even start making up possible sins that Job must have committed. So Job protests to all of this. And in the end, he gets so fed up with the friends that he eventually just gives up on them. Can you see the similarities here in the two views of the ones we looked at at the start? Either Job has done wrong, moralism, or God isn't just, cynicism. So Job then takes up his case directly with God. Now, something to be aware of here that some of us may be able to relate to is that Job is on an absolute emotional roller coaster at this point. He used to think that God was just, but now he can't reconcile that with his own suffering. And so in some outbursts, Job will accuse God of being a bully. Once he even declares that God has orchestrated all the injustice in the world. But the moment he utters that thought, he's terrified of it because he wants to hope and believe that God is truly just. Job's all over the place in this section. And I find that vaguely reassuring because I don't don't know about you, but I can often find myself in situations where I feel in conflict with my own set of beliefs and what I see going on around me. There's a very human, raw and honest nature of Job's wrestling here. And somehow that helps validate me in my moments of what's going on. In the end, he makes one last statement of innocence and then he demands that God shows up personally to explain himself. But before God does, it's at this point that a fourth friend shows up. And this friend has the same assumption as Job and the other friends. He argues God always operates the universe out of justice. But he draws a more sophisticated conclusion about why God people, good people suffer. It may not be punishment for sin in the past, he says. God may inflict suffering as a warning to help people avoid sin in the future. Or God might use pain and suffering to build character or teach people valuable lessons. So here is something we didn't think about in our first efforts to explain suffering. Perhaps he's onto something. His friend doesn't claim to know why Job is suffering. But one thing he is certain of, Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. Job makes no response and the dialogue comes to a close. It's like the wisdom of the ancients has been spent, but the mystery still remains. And then all of a sudden, God shows up in a whirlwind and he responds to Job personally. He first responds to Job's accusation that he's unjust and incompetent at running the universe. God takes Job on this virtual tour of the universe and starts asking him all these questions about the origins of the cosmos. Was Job ever around, he says, when God the architect created the earth or organised the constellations? Has Job ever commanded a sunrise or controlled the weather? Then God starts going into detail, describing the grazing habits of mountain goats and how deer give birth and feeding patterns of lions and wild donkeys. And what's the point of all that? Well, remember the assumption of Job and his friends about what it looks like for God to run the world according to justice. Underneath that assumption is a deeper one that Job and his friends have a wide enough perspective of life to make such a huge claim about how God ought to run the world. And God's response with this virtual tour, well, it deconstructs all of those assumptions. It first of all shows that the universe is a vast and complex place and that God has his eyes on all of it, every detail. Job, on the the other hand, only has a small horizon of his own life's experience to draw from. His view of the world is very limited. And so what what looks like divine injustice from Job's point of view needs to be seen in this infinitely larger context. 
Job is simply not in a position to make such huge accusations about God. After the virtual tour, God asks Job if he'd like to micromanage the world for a day according to the strict principle of justice that Job and his friends assume, punishing every evil deed of every person at every moment with precise retribution. The fact is that carrying out justice in a world like ours is extremely complex. It's never black and white like Job and his friends seem to think, which leads to God's last point. He describes these two fantastic creatures, Behemoth and Levithian, which some people think are like poetic depictions of the hippo and crocodile, but more likely they refer to well-known creatures from ancient Near Eastern mythology that are used elsewhere in the Bible as symbols of disorder and danger that exist in God's good world. But these creatures, they're not evil. God's actually quite proud of them, but they're not safe either. The point is that God's amazing world is very good, but it's not always perfect and it's not always safe. God's world has order and beauty, but it's also wild and sometimes dangerous, just like these two fantastic creatures. And so we come back to the big question of Job's suffering. Why is there suffering in God's world? Whether it's from earthquakes or wild animals or other humans, well, God doesn't explain why. What he does say is we live in an extremely complex and amazing world that at this stage at least is not designed to prevent suffering. And that's God's response. Job challenged God's justice and God responds to Job by saying, you don't have sufficient knowledge about our universe to make such a claim. God demanded a full explanation from God from God about what he could trust in. And how does, how does Job respond? He responds with humility and repentance. He apologises for accusing God and he acknowledges that he's overstepped his bounds. So the book concludes with a short section where God says, your friends are wrong. Our ideas about God's justice were just too simple, not true to the complexity of the world or God's wisdom. And then God says, Job has spoken rightly about him. That's a little bit surprising because it can't apply to everything Job said. I mean, we know that he was drawing hasty and wrong conclusions, but actually God seemed to approve of Job's wrestling. Job came honestly before God with all his emotion and pain and simply wanted to talk to God himself. And God seems to say that's the right way of processing through this, through the struggle of prayer. So the book concludes with Job having his health and his family and his wealth all restored. Not as a reward for good behaviour, but simply as a generous gift from God. And that's the end of the book. But it's not the end of the story, because however many thousands of years later, we're able to live today in the light of what Job's story tells us about God the universe and the human experience. So let's recap what we've learned. Job's friends wondered if the explanation for suffering might be one, if you get things wrong, God will punish you with suffering. Two, God might not be in control, interested or good. Or three, God might be trying to teach us something or build character through suffering. And we've seen from the responses of Job's friends and perhaps instances in our own lives that when we search for reasons of suffering like this, we tend to either simplify God or accuse him, but it's all based on limited evidence and it doesn't stack up. But what we've discovered is the book of Job doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. So what does it do? Well, I think God invites us to trust his wisdom and as we do to embrace suffering 
rather than try and figure out the reason for it. He's asking us to hold on to the mystery and to stay in a close relationship with a God we can't control. In fact, I think he asks us not just to accept the mystery, but to actively embrace it. We read that God says, Job loves me. He is my servant and he fears me. In the Old Testament, the word fear is a much more positive term than maybe what immediately comes to mind today. The word fear in this context means inward awe and wonder. Job didn't put up with not knowing. He actually actively worshipped God and let the mystery grow his sense of love. So how do we walk that path of suffering? How do we cope when faced with a what's going on moment? One of the first things I find fascinating is it says Job tore his robe, fell to the ground and cried out. And yet also in all these things, it says Job did not sin. We as people, especially in the West, if we see somebody who tore their clothes and fell to the ground screaming, we'd be thinking they've kind of lost it. But here I think we see someone being human, crying out and grieving in the midst of their pain. Christianity is not stoicism. And this text proves that. So step one, the book's inviting us to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God and to trust that God actually cares and knows what he's doing. And step two, in his emotional pain and authenticity, and this is the key point for us, Job holds on to a theology of grace. What do I mean by this? Well, what he does not say is, you've taken these things from me. They're mine. I've earned them. I worked hard for these homes and these children, this money. These things were mine. How dare you take them away? What does he say? He says, I came naked into the world, vulnerable and helpless, and I'm leaving naked. Everything I have was on loan from God. They're just gifts of grace. This is why it's absolutely crucial to grab hold of, of the theology of grace when you're suffering. Now, obviously, this is a huge topic to introduce with just a couple of minutes to go. But suffice to say, if we build our lives on the premise that in any shape or form, we deserve our wealth, our family, our friends, our job, our status, that somehow God owes us. Then when we find ourselves suffering, which is by definition of a removal of those things that are important to us, we're going to struggle to reconcile ourselves to God's sovereignty. If we can live in the truth that the ultimate love is God's love, the ultimate wealth is God's love, the ultimate status is God's love, then what suffering is doing, it drives us deeper into the sense of our joy, God's love. So step two, recognise God's grace. And then step three, embrace the mystery with humility. We can see from Job that as God took him on his virtual tour of life, as the almighty, he came to recognise the differences between the creator and the created. He realised the, the bigness of God and the smallness of self. And I think that's an absolutely crucial step on our journey as disciples. You know, one of the reasons that I love this book is as I read it, I could be reading about my own life coming to terms with suffering and embracing it and allowing it to teach me about who God actually is, has been foundational for me and my faith. Living through both my parents dying, the trauma of blended family dysfunction, having to reorientate myself in my life on my own at a young age, took me on a journey with God that I wouldn't swap or change for anything. I must have walked miles as a teenager, wrestling in prayer as Job did, trying to make sense of my world and of God. I can recognise those light bulb moments, understanding my place before him and that journey of going deeper and becoming more excited by the, the mystery drawn to the complex riches of his grace. 
that's what the story of Job is all about. Probably the oldest book in the Bible has at its heart the theology of grace, which points us towards the awe-inspiring mystery of a God so other that we can't really begin to fathom his ways, and yet so personal that he makes a way for us in our moments of suffering and celebration, in tragedy and triumph, in our what's going on moments, we can experience his grace, his wisdom, and rest safely in his love.